Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. This has been a fun week, (laughs) hasn't it been, Margie? I'm trying to think, like last time we were recording... It was right before. CHA was still alive. I'm really glad we didn't invest a lot of time in talking about the polling on that. <laughs> I feel let's, like we're like, vindicated. Let's, let's see how this turns out. It turns out we were right. <laughs> hey, high five. We predicted something. Yes. We predicted that we didn't need to really dig deep into the polling. But we, of course, are digging deep into a lot of other polls. Um, but first, before we move into our top lines, I do want to thank everybody who sent us corrections on Frozen. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would be – it's embarrassing given how many times Sven I've – Ben is the reindeer. I mean, how many times that Frozen's been on the background, discussed <laughs> in some way, how many turquoise things we have, how many, like, p- random people's hair ha- are trying to be styled into Elsa to meet my daughter's exacting Her specifications. Fabulous. By you know, the way. everyone's either Elsa or Anna. I mean, the whole, you know, but like Elsa, Frozen just surrounds me constantly. But I, have, I don't. I have two younger sisters, middle sister Heather, who is this blonde, and Jen, who's the youngest, has this wavy red hair and is the like free spirit of the mm. three of us. So I'm like, oh, my sisters are like, if we could go, if we were all, you know, still like teenagers living in Orlando. How much money could they make being Anna and Elsa for like kid birthday parties? Yes, I've been like to one of those birthdays. Disney. Characters. I think about a hundred bucks. I think is the going rate because I've been to one of those birthday well, parties. Heather and Jen, if you're listening, idea for a like a, a you can backup, make a mint backup career or weekend gig. You can make a mint. Y'all should be frozening. I'll be your Olaf. I'll come as the snowman. <laughs> so the <laughs> only topic I enjoy talking about less than frozen oh. is Donald Trump. <laughs> and what so, about sports, Margie? <laughs> okay, right, sports. It's basically it's frozen Donald Trump and then sports. That's basically the order of things I I that I have to spend more time thinking about than I want to. And today we are actually not going to talk about Donald Trump that much. But Just a little bit. When it comes to his approval ratings. What have Donald Trump's <laughs> approval ratings turned down for? <laughs> a shameless excuse to play a little Little John at the beginning yeah. of today's show. We will talk about what's going on with Donald Trump's approval ratings. Is it actually a decline? And if so, what's driving it? We will also talk about some new writing that's come out about what happened with the polls in 2016, the continuing unfolding of that mystery. Who missed it? Why? Hint, hint, it's all about rural white people who changed their vote from Obama to Trump. But we will explain more um, about the latest analysis of voter files and what went wrong in the polling. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the AHCA, RIP, AHCA. Uh, America was just not that into the House Republican plus Donald Trump health care bill. We'll talk a little bit about why that one went down in flames. Also, the Russia investigation now has about 50 different angles to it. How do you define wiretapping? What is the definition of the word is is? Uh, We will talk a little bit about what people think about all of the Russia stuff. Uh, Then we have a section of our show that in the script has been captioned lady stuff. (laughs) But it's not just lady stuff. It's everybody's stuff. It's not just lady stuff. It's everybody's stuff. 
That's all I'll say for now. <laughs> a quick French polling update, and then their good dogs, Brant, will talk a little bit about um, a, a, a data journalism approach to rating dogs. Excellent. Not sports or Elsa or Donald Trump. Fantastic. <laughs> but first, we're going to go through the poll of the week. And you may think, if you listen to the show regularly, that everybody hates everybody. Nobody trusts anything. Lack of faith in constant in our institutions. Which just is generally the truth. Just rampant. Um, However, there's one silver lining, and that's advertisers. This is from a YouGov poll where more people now than three years ago say that they generally find advertisements to be honest. And now it's almost three-fourths who say that they find ads to be honest. And in March of 2014, it was just over half. Um, You have almost... Two-thirds, about six in ten, say that they generally trust the ads that they see, read, or hear. A couple years ago, it was even uh, 50-50, trust and don't trust. Now, it's 60 to 40. I mean, I find – I mean, that's a pretty darn big movement. Is it that there's less political – but this was from March 2014. Would there have been a lot of political ads on TV? No. Because in a midterm year, you're not seeing the airwaves crushed in the spring. No, no. If this was – March 2016, I would get why there had been a big change in trust in advertising right. over the course of one year because less political ads. But right. That's fascinating to me. Right. And it's, it doesn't specify political ads, but still, if you live in a battleground state and it's an election year, you're just that's overwhelmed. most of what the ads are. You're seeing. overwhelmed. Um, but this is March of an odd year compared to March of a midterm year. So not really a political time to see a lot of ads. So this is really just about people are enjoying and trusting and responding to the ads that they see, which is quite a thing. So that's good. Good job, advertisers. You are a shining light in what is otherwise oh a sea of dysfunction. America, this is where we are. <laughs> advertisers are the people you think are trusted. <laughs> By the way, we well, love our advertisers adverti- on this show. That's right. We are advertisers. Like, we knew you'd come back. Come back to us. <laughs> we love our advertisers. <laughs> we knew that when all else failed, you would come back to us. Anyway, back to Trump world. Uh, so as I was walking into Margie's office... Uh, uh, everybody on Twitter was all abuzz with the latest Gallup tracking, showing Donald Trump's approval rating at 35%. Whoa. One more point. Whoa. One more point. One more point. Yeah. I mean, this is one more point than from the last poll. I mean, you know, we had a couple readers or folks on Twitter complain when we had shown the second, like, mid-30s point last week from Quinnipiac or whoever it was. But now this is really a thing. I mean, if you look at the Huffington Post pollster tracker, he's a 54, disapproved, 41, approve. You've had a variety of polls all showing movement in this direction, even if they're – are house effects or just difference, differences from different outlets, they are all pointing in the same direction. Morning Console shows new lows. I think Rasmussen shows a new low. Quinnipiac shows a low. Gallup shows new low. I mean, everybody's showing lows. I mean, this is clearly a thing. Yeah. This is – it's – it's not it's not good uh, if you are the Trump administration. I mean, there's but but as we'll talk about in a moment, you can certainly say, well, look, there are people out there who like Donald Trump who aren't getting polled. And I think that is probably true. But that's why looking at the trend lines matters. So do we know for sure that it's if we read every mind in America that exactly 35 percent would approve of the job Trump is doing? No, probably not. But we can feel reasonably confident that there have been some people who approved a week or two ago who don't approve now. Right. Um, and and so that's why looking at the trend lines is much more valuable than is the exact 35 percent number correct. And just to put in some historical context, and so this is from Gallup, um, Obama's low point was 38 percent. And there were a couple different years, 2011 and 14, where he reached that not in his first year. Uh, Clinton's all time low was at 37 percent. That was in the summer of his first year. Uh, Gerald Ford had a 37 percent rating in a couple points in 1975. George W. Bush, his lowest was 25 percent. But that was I I think that second term It doesn't say the year, but I think that was second term. H.W. was at 29 percent. Reagan at 35, Carter at 28, Nixon at 24, Johnson at 35, Truman 22. Goodness, there's a Truman number here. Um, And then 
Kennedy's lowest approval rating was 56 and Eisenhower's was 48. So, you know, he is not 48 yet. 48 was Ike's low? Man, I like Ike. That was That's a good, right. That was an accurate slogan. Yep. People did like Ike. Yep. So, um, so he's not at the lowest you can possibly go, I guess, is what we can say for him. But it seems like he is low for so early, mm-hmm. right? That I think we can say. He's low for this early. Clinton had a low point. He was off to a rocky start. Um, so that's maybe a comparable point. But we're going to see where this continues to go. Oh, wait, here are the, here are the years um, for Nixon's. Yeah, this is their average for their first year. So everybody's average for their first year is a lot higher than where Trump is so far. Even Clinton's average for his first year was ended up being 53. Yeah, most of these folks, other presidents in March of their first year were all above water. Um, of course, the more recent presidents have lower numbers. I, I continue to believe that it's just now we're just angrier, that pe- we're just more partisan. And if the president's not in your party, you just don't like him. And it's just what you do, because it's hard for me to fathom. And I mean, even Barack Obama, when he was first elected, hugely popular, hugely, hugely popular, still like 62. Like, that's a good number, but that's lower than, you know, what Nixon had when he was. So I feel like even when even if you're beloved these days. The ceiling is just lower. Yeah, yeah. So I, I should correct myself. This isn't the average of the first year. This is where they were at this, sa- this point, March, in their first year. And it by that accounting, Trump is just way, way below where yeah. everyone else is. So there may be a ceiling, but it's quite possible that Trump has hit the floor. Well, he has, you know, this is a floor. So and, and we don't know what's driving this, but there is a lot of conjecture that this is a result of the failure last week of the uh, attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, CBS has a new poll out um, that they asked people this question. As you may know, Congress did not pass repeal and replace legislation. What do you think is the main reason the Republican health care plan did not pass? So always a little and we we love Anthony and we love our friends at CBS. I'm always a little ambivalent about these questions that try to get people to play political strategists. Right? right. Like asking your average voter, like, why do you think the bill failed? Like even people who work here in Congress will have like eight <laughs> different reasons for why the bill, you know. Yes. And this is a, this is a really good point. And it is something that. You know, it is hard to get clients. Sometimes they don't, you know, they want voters, they want their respondents to tell them. I'm like, well, we know we have to ask them what they think. And then I'll tell you what we think the sentiment is rather than ask people to report what they think other people think. But it's something that's part of intros for focus groups. It's a reminder for the press. When you see a lot of press, like public facing Focus groups and surveys, watch out for that. That is a common thing that because that's what people want to report on. So that's what the kinds of questions you ask. But it's hard to get people to actually report some kind of answer. You're just basically asking them to report either something they haven't really studied or just whatever their partisan leanings are. Yeah. And so in this case, uh, the the options people could choose when asked, why do you think the plan didn't pass? Was Donald Trump didn't compromise enough? Congressional Republicans didn't compromise enough. Congressional Democrats didn't compromise enough. Or the bill just wasn't popular. Mm. And so the bill just wasn't popular. Like by magic. For, but it just wasn't popular. The bill was sitting by itself alone oh, at the lunchroom. I know. It's just unfair. Who knows the how these things king. happen? Wasn't I know. Be the prom king. Just if only they had had designer sneakers, then maybe it would have been more popular. <laughs> <laughs> But in fact, Instead I don't. Instead of words that work, I know. Right? Exactly. Just needed a cooler wardrobe. <laughs> no, right? Um, but I mean, even here, congressional Republicans didn't compromise enough. Which congressional Republicans? Right. Freedom Caucus or Tuesday Group? Of course, I do not expect your average American to know who the heck the Tuesday Group is. Right. No offense, Tuesday Groupers. Yeah. Y'all are great, but I don't. That's think- not their goal. Their right. goal is not for voters to know what they're up to. Right. <laughs> We succeed. That's okay. On this, of course, you find that only 4% of Republicans think that this didn't pass because Donald Trump didn't compromise enough, which also compromise enough. I think you could also say, well, is, is, is compromise the. He was doing lots verb? of compromising. Yeah. Was he not he just advocating enough? Right. Was he not uh, threatening to blow up those Freedom Caucus folks enough? Right. 
Which he did wind up angrily tweeting at them over the weekend. So that prediction did come true. It just came true after the vote. That's right. And I don't think anybody really cared. No. Uh, so so I, I, I'm not a fan to, with any of the answer categories to this question. I just think it's a little tough. And you can see then the response effect that half say the bill just wasn't popular and everyone else is evenly divided between Trump, Republicans, or Democrats shows that people aren't really quite sure what to do. So they're just answering, well, the bill just wasn't popular. But the bill didn't just become unpopular just like – out of nowhere, you know, somebody wrote it and defended it, (laughs) presumably. And um, so that's not really in here. And Paul Ryan, like Paul Ryan should have his own category, perhaps, or you should just have, you know, there are a variety of ways to improve that question. Um, So I'm not sure looking at this, I can say what happened. Well, YouGov has also asked people what they think is coming next, which I actually think is a... It, it, it's on the edge of the are we asking people to be political pundits type stuff. But right. I'm kind of interested. It's, it, this is also it's a it's a should question. So it's it's normative. It's asking people what they would like Congress to do. I think that's better. What would you like Congress to do next? Um, and they ask a question. How likely is it that do you think folks will continue to push to try to repeal the ACA? So on the question where YouGov is asking people to play pundit. You have about 50 percent who think that it is very or somewhat likely um, that uh, Donald Trump and Congress will ultimately repeal Obama, President Obama's health care law. You have another 34 percent who say it is not very or not at all likely, 16 percent who throw their hands up and say, heck, if I know. Uh, and then you ask, well, what do you think they should do? And here you have uh, about 44 percent who say they should move on to other issues. For Democrats, 65% say move on to other issues. For independents, uh, it's 35 say propose a new bill, 39 say move on. Republicans, you have a majority, 59%, who say let's give it another go. Let's propose a new bill. Let's not let this go. Uh, but w- a quarter of Republicans do say let's move on. And it, another 15% say I don't know. It's interesting that a fifth of Democrats say propose another bill. Maybe maybe Democrats are like, no, that was fun. We can do that again. <laughs> well, it's, I, I <laughs> that wonder if it's, you know, they're an acknowledgement that, look, the Affordable Care Act's not perfect. And this is now Trump's strategy, right, is let's just sit back and he keeps saying let's wait for it to explode. You know, so we've seen that the ACA was not super popular, became much more popular when it came under threat. Uh, does that persist now that the immediate threat has gone away? Does ACA revert back to the fave unfave numbers it had a couple months ago, or does it stay where it is now? Um, I think that will be that will be interesting. But you also have, you know, I, I think on like Friday I saw this interview that had been done with Chuck Schumer where he was like, "Yeah, we'd love something that would allow you know fixing of Obamacare. We could create a public option. You know, we could we could do things with drug prices." I'm like. Those are not those are not compromises with Republicans. Those are things that take the ACA further to the left. Well, maybe they don't. They just don't like, want to come sure, to the table. Sure. Maybe they just don't want to. Come. Do they want to compromise or not? Do they want to revise the bill or not? So, you know, meanwhile, um, it, there's a lot of polling that shows that, you know, despite what was considered a failure for Trump, um, it, it doesn't necessarily hurt him with his base. So that's true whether we're talking about uh, Affordable Care Act or the we're talking about the um, the Russia business, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, this is from YouGov and Huffington Post uh, that asked also a similar t- set of questions on healthcare and and broke it out by among Trump voters. So only forty five percent of Trump voters supported this repeal, replace and repeal um, bill, which is not overwhelming. Um, and, you know, only 57 percent, I guess that's comparable to the Republicans in the other poll, say they should propose a new one now. Um, and then if you look at who do you think was responsible, Trump voters say, and this question is a little bit different, the authors of the bill, these sort of anonymous authors of the bill, that's an answer category, <laughs> Republicans in Congress who opposed the bill, Trump, Democrats in Congress who opposed the bill or none. And among Trump voters, only 4% blame Donald Trump. A plurality say the authors of the bill. And another quarter say Republicans in Congress who opposed the bill. So a clear majority blamed Republicans in some way as opposed to Democrats. Among Trump vote, this is among Trump voters now. Yeah, there's that's that's why I believed and talked about either last week or the week before that if you call it Trump care, 
that's going to be much more effective at winning over Republican support than if you call it Ryan Care, because there are lots of Republicans who like Donald Trump and just could not care less for congressional leadership. They just couldn't, um, which is why I, I am so amused by this, the authors of the bill, because that was also a point of contention, right? Toward the end, you had congressional Republicans who liked the bill making the case, we wrote this with Donald Trump. We did this hand in hand with his administration. I mean, technically, you had parts of large pieces of the bill that were from a framework that now Secretary of HHS Tom Price put together. So you can't just say this was like all Paul Ryan. This did have a lot of executive branch involvement. But that's, again, something that I don't think most voters. Right. Perce- you know, ah, Tom Price back when he was in Congress had this plan and then it and people don't know that. Stuff. No, I mean, on, honestly, I, honestly, and and I get I mean, the the conspiracy theory around this is this was all the grand plan was to just kind of fail fast, as they say, and just get it all out of the way and just, you know, have it all just go belly up as quickly as possible so nobody really remembers what happens. Um, what happened – and then, you know, similar just to go to uh, – again to reiterate how solid Trump's base is, is the follow-up question is, well, who do you think was at least partially responsible for the failure and only 11 percent of Trump voters say Trump? Yeah. And here in this question where they can answer multiple, it, it, it seems, everybody else gets bla- like equal amounts of blame. So in the follow-up among Trump voters – Authors of the bill, Republicans in Congress who opposed, Democrats who opposed, they all get basically the same amount. Trump voters are unwilling to give Trump at least partial responsibility for the failure. Hence why he can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his approval rating. I don't think we would see fall below 30 percent. So in lieu of, of shooting course, somebody. Now that I've said this, now that I've said this. I don't think he's going to go shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. No, but he can allow another country to shoot our democracy, which is what is happening. That was an interesting (laughs) transition there. uh... Which is what is happening with this Russian, the Russian investigation, which, you know, is complicated. Like, this is a really complicated story. Every day there's a new wrinkle. It requires an incredible amount of attention to be paid by all the folks here who are paying attention to it. It requires knowledge of, you know, agencies and foreign policy that a lot of folks are not, you know, and technology that a lot of folks are not necessarily familiar with, even the people here who talk about this all the time. And the and the investigation is now an investigation into, like, five different things all rolled into one, right? Yeah. It is an investigation into... Did Russia do stuff that was bad? Seems pretty likely the answer is yes. Did the Trump campaign do bad things with Russia? That is still unclear and an open question. Mm -hmm. Did the Obama administration do bad things by wiretapping the Trump campaign? That seems to not have been the case. (laughs) Right. But was there incidental collection of Trump campaign folks that the intelligence community got that was then – They did bad things by unmasking those names and leaking it. So it's the leaking is a bad thing. The wiretapping that has been debunked would have been a bad thing. Right. But it's still in the news and it's in this poll. is a bad thing. Russia, meddling, that's a bad thing. There are four different bad things that are being investigated. And then there's also, you know, how are the folks who are supposed to be investigating this in Congress handling it all? The investigators, are they now colluding? Is there like a a cover-up or a... Yeah. So okay, now there are five pieces to this this mess. Right. Right. So it's it is super complicated, right? Um so it's no surprise to me that and we've seen public polling about this that it's just not really like a big driver for a lot of voters even though this is such a big this is obviously such a big issue. I mean, it it, it just in terms of protecting our democracy. Um but what is interesting here is how Republicans are, you know, just some of the Republican responses on um, views toward Trump and Russia ties. So while overall a majority say we should have some sort of independent investigation to investigate the potential links, although you can almost get a majority to say, should we have an independent investigation about whatever, you know, well, fill in the blank. I loved that question a few weeks ago where it was like, do you think Congress is capable oh, of yeah. handling this? It's like, guys, Congress is not capable of anything. I loved that question wording. Um, it, it, there, there's, there is total... 
I think this this question of whether or not Donald Trump's offices were wiretapped and the response of the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and that has like led to this all becoming even more stirred up than it was back when it was more straightforward. An investigation. Did Russia do bad things? Did the Trump campaign do bad things with them? The new wrinkles have all been added since that like Saturday morning tweet storm of Trump's. Right. But the the, the muddying of the waters has been really has has succeeded, I think, right. as, as a strategic matter. Two thirds of Republicans say it's at least somewhat likely that Trump's offices were wiretapped or under government surveillance and during and 49 percent of independents. It's it, independents are split 49, 49 on whether it was likely or not. Independence going to independent. Right. Well, maybe. Right. So, I mean, I guess what I so this doesn't say by Obama, this question. This is from CBS. So it doesn't say did Obama do this. Right. And I think then we'd have a different answer. Um, If you ask the question, like, do you believe Trump's charge that Obama did this has been, you know, not confirmed by anybody, including the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. You'd get a different answer Mm -hmm. from this. Um, If you ask this question about, like, was somebody else under government, like, I don't know who you could just, maybe not Hillary Clinton, but somebody else. If you had some other figure, was this person. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer was like, was some other, like, leading political figure um, wiretapped in some way. People might, without saying who might have done it, people might say, yeah, no, that's that's possible. Like, you know, who knows what goes on there? There's all kinds of technology people are doing, you know, spying each other. And I don't know how that all works. Mm-hmm. Right. You could see a, a voter saying that there's corruption and technology. And I'm just assuming they're all listening in on each other. Yeah. Well, and, and remember, I mean, Mike Flynn had to step down as national security advisor because he had said, no, 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 no. I never had any conversations about the Russians where I was talking about stuff I shouldn't have been talking about. And there was a transcript of a conversation he had where he was saying stuff that was different than what he told Vice President Pence, he said. Yep. Like that transcript didn't just come from the transcript fairies. Like someone recorded that conversation. <laughs> like the bill, like the bill that's unpopular. <laughs> someone recorded that conversation. That does not mean that Trump Tower was wiretapped. But you can understand if you're, you know. The viewers at home, like, well, didn't they wiretap that guy? You know, even if it was, well, no, they were, it was our surveillance listening in on the Russians, as well they should. Right. Um, and he just got caught up in it because, hey, he called the Russians. Um, but you you can understand how people at home would, like, the way you word these questions has to be very specific and deliberate. And yet for, I think, a lot of people, they just hear like, oh, wiretapping. Did that happen? Right. And that's the muddied waters. Right. So it, it, in in some, though, nonetheless, that number that it's such a massive number of Republicans who feel that's likely yeah. that happened. I mean, that is pretty staggering. Mm-hmm. And and that is what has made Trump successful in general, is that he can say these things which, you know, sound unbelievable and incredible and so fantastical to folks who, you know, who are following this closely, people who are involved Um in law enforcement and, and our national security, um, but yet they are they straight people as true, and that is that uh, that number to me is a real example of that. Well, the the Quinnipiac has also been asking, and they've been asking it pretty much since the inauguration about how important do you think this issue is, and you wind up with a pretty healthy size. Uh, piece of the electorate that thinks this is either very or somewhat important. 46% saying they think it's very important. Add another 19 to that who think it's somewhat important. You've got yourself a stew. I mean, you've got a lot of people that think this is important, but, yep. it's, but it has not increased in importance since Inauguration Day. We've had all of this mess about it and all of this conversation and all of these new revelations. and But it's not as though more people are like, well, I didn't think it was a big deal, but gosh, now it sounds like a big deal. Right. Once Nunes went to the White House for a briefing with that, I mean, no, that's not. <laughs> it has, yeah. So p- right. people are like, yes, I think this is a big deal. But the numbers uh, in terms of importance have not budged since Inauguration Day. And look at the massive difference by party. 12% of Republicans think it's very important compared to 70% of Democrats. I mean, that is just, uh, you could not, you almost can't get a bigger difference yeah. than that. P- we, people are just living in different universes of, of what is and is not a big, important issue. Yeah. 
So anyway, that was our short Trump section. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> we tried. About again? No. We tried. Well, so now, although we're not totally done with Trump stuff, but actually I, I am so excited to talk about this for a little bit. So two really cool pieces came out this week um, about going back in time and let's look at what happened in 2016 and how did folks get it wrong and how did Trump win and all of that. Um, revisiting that in a way that is informed by a lot of data. Um, and so you first have uh, Nate Cohn at The Upshot, who has taken a look. Former guest of the pollsters. Former guest of the pollsters. He's taken a look at the voter file, um, which is something that my colleague Patrick at Echelon has been doing like periodically at like, you know, 11 p.m. on a Saturday. Like he sits down, cracks open a voter file and just like starts tweet storming about the fun stuff he finds. Yeah. Well, so Nate's, Nate Cohn has done this as well now in in peace form at at the upshot and basically tries to tackle the question of look who voted what do we know about who voted who voted more likely or who voted more than we expected who voted less than we expected and basically what he finds is he says that uh, quote in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election many analysts suggested Hillary Clinton lost to Donald J Trump because of poor democratic turnout months later it appears clear it's clear that the turnout was only modestly better for Mr Trump than expected to the extent turnout was weak it was mainly among black voters even there the scale of democratic weakness has been exaggerated and instead he says it's clear to him that quote large numbers of white white working class voters shifted from the democrats to Mr. Trump. Almost one in four of President Obama's 2012 white working class supporters defected from the Democrats supporting either Trump or a third party candidate. And so he's doing this looking from looking at voter files in Florida, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. So not all states have updated voter files yet. Um, but and you, that was just where they had polled in advance of the election. So they didn't go everywhere. Those were the states they went to. Right. And this this was the uh, you may recall Margie and I were involved in a project where the upshot did a survey of Florida voters and had us all wait the data um, and try to figure out what do we think turnout will look like. And here the estimates were that turnout is turnout was it was a little more favorable to Trump, but it's not as though there was a surge in white voters. There was a surge in white voters who had voted for Obama last time voting for Trump this time. There, yeah. were, there were flips. Right. Um, and so I have been really interested in this population. At Echelon, we just launched this thing we are calling our Trump Country Survey where we look at these counties where Donald Trump's performance, he, he either won over a place that Obama had won or he like, like, yeah, Mitt Romney won it, but like Trump blew it out of the water, right? Like places where we know Trump flipped a lot of people who had been Obama voters mm -hmm. before because it's just a fascinating constituency. And that's what the uh, Nate Cohn finds. And then Steve Shepard at Politico did a piece about how Democrats are now. Hold on, wait. I want before we go to okay. Steve Shepard's thing. I, you know, I think, well, what's interesting about the Nate Cohn piece, well, first, he's right. A lot of folks, on you know, tend to kind of lay this at the lay Clinton's loss at the feet of African-Americans who didn't turn out as much. I mean, I've seen that narrative a lot. And this debunks that a little bit, um, which I think is important. Um, and also shows that this is, you know, this was a messaging issue rather than an organizational or turnout issue, which, again, was an advantage that the Clinton campaign had over Trump. This kind of bears this out that actually, you know, it actually wasn't turnout. There wasn't really a turnout issue, which means that the Clinton organization, you know, kind of met, you know, met where what met at the threshold or at least it, it was successful in that regard. It was more of a messaging issue where voters change their minds, more persuasion than turnout. Yeah. If you I mean, you can argue that Obama both times around had both a great machine and a great message. This campaign was a great machine versus a. I'm going to say great best. I mean, a message compelling. That, a, a make America great again, great message, mm -hmm. a, a compelling message, one mm -hmm. that enough people obviously found found to be compelling. And so a message in the absence of a machine. Enough people in the right states. Enough people in the right states. The right, Clinton yeah, still yeah, won yeah. the popular vote. But a, a, a message without a machine versus a machine that you can argue what was, you know, would you rather have a machine without a message or a message without a machine? That seems to be what this campaign was. 
Um, so take a look. And this is, again, just these three states. And so a lot of folks are going to be, you know, doing this kind of analysis. You'll see more of these stories as mm-hmm. the voter file continues to be available. But this is a first peek at it. And we think it's definitely worth taking a look. Yeah. Then the other article, which was by Steve Shepard, another former guest of the pollsters at Politico. And this is just focusing on the Democratic side and conversations with Democratic analysts and pollsters where um, – uh, the theory there is is that polling altogether missed um, downscale white voters, particularly in rural areas, that it missed those folks, and that may have been part of why uh, Democrats, you know, failed to predict Trump's win, had a harder time talking to those voters. Those two things together leading to whatever happened. Um, you know, I, I think the article is interesting because it does highlight a point that I've seen in my travels around town, which is Democrats really coming together to try to hash all this stuff out. Um, that's what the article discusses. And that's true. Like, I've seen that. That's, you know, everybody says that. That's a true that's a, a true fact, as they say. Um, I do, though. And I do. And also when we've had Kylie on and she said this, she does know it's harder to get some downscale voters with any kind of mode. It's not one type of mode and you may get them, but you may get not get a fully rich, robust group of them. And that could be what happened um, or part of what happened. And we'll have her back on or you can hear more about what happened in the APOR findings later on in May. Um, but this isn't just a Democratic issue. That's the thing about this article is that, you know, Repub- I mean, remember Tony Fabrizio thought oh, Clinton yeah. was going to win. I mean, media outlets had it wrong. The Trump campaign, I mean, everybody had Clinton winning. So this isn't like Democrats, you know, we're a bunch of dunderheads and we don't know how to find downscale white voters. I mean, this was something that was a methodological issue that happened across the board. If it's just this one issue, it may also be other issues on top of that. And the the thing that polling has, we've gotten lucky because for decades, the people who took polls were not so different from the people who didn't take polls. And in this article, they talk about the, the, the reality we are now in. Where there are is a certain type of person who just does not want to talk about what they think about politics, and those people are tend to be more of these Trump supporter downscale type folks. And so, if they're just not talking to pollsters at all, that's a huge, huge challenge to try to tackle, and something where we're we're going to get it wrong. More, you know, we're going to continue to get it wrong uh, unless we find new ways to reach these people, or we rebuild new trust, or. You reach a small bit of them and you just weight them accordingly by demographics. <laughs> right, right, right. Or you have to overshoot your targets because there are folks you're not talking to. You know, uh, there are other kinds of issues there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't see it as this is a uniquely democratic issue. It is not. It is not for sure. Um, okay. So moving on. Is it lady stuff or is it everybody stuff? <laughs> <laughs> So there were two <laughs> polls out, and they're both. I just was amazed that they came out at the same time. We're having a lot of conversations about um, gender pay equity, paid leave, um, women's health, uh, in the context of the Affordable Care Act, in the context of Ivanka, what's Ivanka doing, and all this stuff. So there were two polls that came out kind of within days of each other that were really interesting, tackling different types of topics with different approaches. And the first is Pew. Pew had a really extensive poll on paid leave and paid family medical leave. And what was really interesting is that, well, first, there's a widespread support. I mean, people think that there should be paid leave. But it doesn't have a lot of opponents. Um what is interesting is that overwhelmingly people think that employers should be responsible rather than federal government or state government. So, you know, 62 percent say workers should receive paid leave to deal with their own serious health uh, health conditions. Sixty one percent say employers should uh, provide mothers with paid leave. I mean, majorities here with only kind of 10, 10 to 15 percent sort of, you know, low tens uh, thinking the federal government should be responsible. Overall, we're talking about, you know, two thirds to over 80 percent saying there should be some sort of paid leave option for a variety of different groups, whether it's fathers, mothers, workers, uh, trying to take care of someone else in their family, what have you. There's not that many differences there. Um, what is the challenge is what's the downside? Who pays for it? And what does it mean? So you have more people here who feel, while overwhelmingly people think that employers should be responsible for paid leave, they actually think at the same time that it hurts employers. So 
Again, this is from the Pew study. People think that that paid leave has a positive effect for families, particularly women, but also men, but a negative effect, almost half think it has a somewhat or very negative effect on employers, even more feel that way about small businesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, and as somebody who runs a small business who we've never actually encountered this, we have never had anybody on our staff who has had to take time off. Uh, who has had a child or had anything like this where, you know, but but as a small business owner, you know, I, it, I'm i thinking about, okay, if I had a member of my staff who was going to be gone for three months, I would have to hire somebody new to fill in their spot. So then I'd be paying two sal like that. Is, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah we've, that's a cost. That's a cost for sure. And so that's why I am fascinated in a way because you've got so many, there there is a big, there's a bit of a party gap here on the question of, um, who should pay for this? So you wind up where you've got, uh, you know, a, an awful lot of people, both Republican and Democrat, saying, yes, there should be paid leave. Um, but then you have the question of, OK, among those who support it, uh, where should the pay come from? And Republicans are more likely than Democrats to say it should come from the employer instead of the government, which we often think of. On the one hand, Republicans not wanting government to have new entitlements. On the other hand – It's a mandate. It's a mandate on businesses. It's a burden on businesses. Republicans don't like those either. So – Kind of, kind of an interesting, interesting breakdown. There. Right, and if you, you know, if you took, if this wasn't just like with healthcare, you know, you have businesses, small, medium, and large businesses who have to invest a lot of time and money into the execution of various kinds of benefits, and then they vary, and it's a cost for businesses that businesses handle differently. Um, if the government does it, then is it more unified, and then you don't have businesses maybe unknowingly making decisions, business decisions based on what they think their staff is going to do. Or what, you know, if they grow bigger, then that's a You're change. persuading me that this should be a government but, and not an right. employer-sponsored well, policy, Margie. Yeah, You're persuading so, me right now. <laughs> I mean, because then it's not – I mean, it, for a lot of small businesses in particular, that it's like that, that may not be their core competency. If you're a massive business and you can have a whole floor dedicated to figuring this stuff out, um, if you are – a small business, then, you know, then maybe you're just kind of making some other decisions about who you hire or how many people, how many hours everybody gets. So you don't have to deal with this stuff. Um, so it's, but it, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't add cost. It definitely adds cost and, and burdens to small business for sure. Um, and you're asking every business to kind of go it alone. It's the same thing when you're talking about, you know, but the flip side, when you're talking about like moms who have in particular, usually they're moms, not always moms, but families having to figure out all of these different types of care themselves, how do they go full time versus part time and handle the benefits and the leave and paying for care? And because we don't have any national standards or national child care policy, it just means everybody's kind of going it alone. And that causes a variety of problems because not everybody has the resources or is set up to kind of navigate all those difficult challenges. So that's, you know, I think this sheds a little bit of light on the pay for piece. Um, it also, they also asked a question about, um, what people have done themselves if they have taken leave, um, who took less time off than they actually needed or wanted to, and why did they do that? And two-thirds said they couldn't afford to lose more wages or salary. About half said they thought they might risk losing their job. And 40% said they felt badly for, you know, their employee, you know, their coworkers taking uh, taking time off work. Um, the fewest said, but still a quarter said, well, because employers said you can't take any more time off. So it's just, you know, there's just a lot of the emotional and also cost-sensitive challenges that not just for employers, but also for workers. And there was, by the way, uh, a slight gap here on the question of mothers versus fathers and who should get paid leave. So on the question of who should... Uh, to what extent should mothers receive paid leave? 82% of people think yes, mothers should receive paid leave following the birth or adoption of a child. Only 69% say that about fathers. So paternity leave, whilst, while popular, 69%, not as popular as maternity leave. Right. And so you have some companies like tech companies who are trying to woo top talent who are very aggressive about some of these leave packages where they get, you know, dads get three months. And, you know, there's been other studies. I have a friend where she got a year. A year. So in the UK where they have a year, there is a whole industry of people who do leave they're like leave workers who, you know, they come in for that year that somebody's off because you have a year. That's a whole like contract industry. In the industry. UK, is the leave paid for by the government or by companies? 
I don't know the answer oh, to that. I'll have to research this. It is gar- it's, it, but it's guaranteed. I mean, it's a year, you know. So, I mean, a year, a year is a, I mean, that's a good, that's a good chunk of time. I mean, look, people take, I think they had a question here how long people took, but maybe we don't have that. But people may, on average had taken like 10 weeks, I think it was. Um, which is a lot less than a year. And it's like, you know, not really that much. But the other thing too, which this poll doesn't go into, is that there's a lot more to fixing these challenges for women in the workforce than the, you know, few weeks after the kid comes. <laughs> it's like 18 years of stuff to handle. And like, <laughs> I, I would definitely be willing to trade a couple weeks on the front end for like months and months of flexibility, years of flexibility on the back end. So anyway, just another, another thought there. So check it out. As always, we link to these things in our show notes. Um, but then periundum, those folks, so, we've talked so about so them where before. where do babies come from, Margie? <laughs> They come from polls. Polling about where babies come from. There isn't a topic that we can't find a poll on. And (laughs) we finally have found, like, not just like some kind of like random thing on Tinder or whatever or OkCupid, although we've had those too, but this is like a real poll by, you know, political pollsters. and it was flagged for us by a couple folks actually flagged this for us because it had a, quite an incredible statistic, which is 52% of men said that they their lives were not improved in any way by birth control, um, which was interesting. Yeah, benefited personally. Have you benefited personally from any woman in your life having access to affordable birth control? So anyone, like it could be your mom, it could be your sister, it could be your coworker. And 52% said, nope, not me. So that made a lot of news. I had a lot of ladies flagging that for me online. Um, but the other headline-grabbing thing from this poll is it, it, um, the question was, do you think women should be able to have sex for the purpose of pleasure without having to worry about getting pregnant or not? And 80% said yes, which I guess is good. But, I mean, that other 20%, I mean, that's a lot who are like, no. But they asked the question about men, too, and it's 76% for men. So I know. it's actually lower for men. I know. I know. I wonder who— Not men respondents, but about should men be able to not have to worry. So like there's it's a gr- lower for men. So there's a group of respondents who said, yeah, totally fine for women. No, I don't think so for men. Like that men should always have to have that fear floating yeah. <laughs> around in the back of their minds. That's the least you can have, okay? That's you know, there was another question in here. I don't know if it's in the script, but there was another question I liked. Um, like if if men could have children, if men were responsible for having children, would there be affordable birth control for everybody? And like overwhelmingly people said yes. So I was like, Well, that's true. But if men were responsible for childcare and made all the laws, well that just, you know, then I don't know. What would women do? Because <laughs> obviously we wouldn't be in control of everything if they were also in control of the laws. Um, so that was all pretty interesting. What was the other thing that I've – the other – oh, yes. Yeah. So they had a couple – I love these questions that pollsters have like, what do you suppose this is? And then they tell you the real answer. So one thing that was fun was who is most likely to use prescription birth control? Who do you think is most likely to use prescription birth control? And this is prescription, so they're clear that's the pill or other things like – you know, the long, like, IUDs long asking IUDs and I get Norplant, those types of things, right? Um, so 8% said married women, even though that is the correct answer as it's underlined. And a fifth said unmarried women. Most said most equally, but only 8% said it's mostly married women. And then the other question they said, um, what percent of women in the U.S. will use birth control in their lifetime? So they're not even saying prescription. They're just birth control in their lifetimes. Just your best guess is fine. And the actual answer is 99%. That's the correct answer that only about a fifth of people said that's what their guess was. Uh, 5% said only about a quarter of women will use birth control in their lifetime. I don't know. I don't, this is probably, I don't know. So Got to get out more, whoever so that 5% I, I am, is. I am on the board of the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. It's a group I got involved in because I started doing some stuff with them about what do young Republicans think about birth control. Um, and so I've loved working with them. I have learned so much about uh, birth control and family planning. And it's a it's a nonpartisan organization. They've got pro-life and pro-choice folks on the board. It's great. And they have they have all of this swag that they were that they were giving out for um, – 
Thanks Birth Control Day. Like every once every year, they have Thanks Birth Control Day where they talk about this sort of stuff and like the things be you know besides hey, not just you can have sex and not have babies from it, but like what are all of the other things that this provides? And so they have these hats, Thanks Birth Control, and one of the guys on the board, he's this you know like older gentleman. You know, you're very like navy blazer with the gold buttons type, and he's like. You should see the looks I got when I wore this hat out on the golf course a few weeks ago. And I was like, I'm so – I'm just imagining this, like, that's a great. man in his 70s wearing a hat that says thanks birth control out Aww, on the golf course. That's like, good. So he's not of that 52%. Way to go. Way to go, dude. But um, but the rest of you, study up, guys, <laughs> on some of this stuff. Okay, Kristen, you have a French polling update. Yes, very brief update. So uh, for uh, those of you who listen and care about international elections, a week or two ago, we talked Dutch elections and how the pollsters basically got that one right or closer to right than we have been lately. What's going on in France? Well, right now, uh, as we've mentioned, the major party candidates in France have been failing. Um, Your center left, center right, which are normally the top two in elections, have sort of fallen off. Um, The British-born wife of French presidential candidate François Fillon has been formally put under investigation for allegations that she had this fake job and embezzled money. So he is falling in the polls even further. Um, And the center-left candidate uh, from the Socialist Party, which is the incumbent president's party, has also been falling a little bit. And in part, the biggest change in the polls over the last few weeks has been the rise of, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Did that I butcher sounds that? Right. That sounds right that to sounds me. That sounds right? Yeah, okay. that sounds good to me. Um, he is essentially the Bernie Sanders in this race. Like, he is the the, the left wing. Like, if you think of the Socialist Party as actually the center-left party mm-hmm. in, in France, he is the left-left guy. So your presidential election now, it's like your traditional Republican and traditional Democrat are gone. And instead, you have Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> is is what's going on over there. So at any rate, it still re- appears very likely that the runoff will be between Marine Le Pen, who in that scenario is the Trump, and Macron, who is the Bloomberg, the like centrist, technocratic-y type guy. Um, it's still likely that Macron will win, but just wanted to give an update that the the Bernie Sanders of France, is uh, his campaign is – it's his improving in the polls. Have you seen head to heads that show that Le Pen would still lose in a yes, two I way? Believe, I believe she is still because the last I we either talked about or I saw is that she would lose in a variety of two ways, even if she is competitive in right. the multi candidate. And that is still, I believe, what the polls show. But of course, I remain uncomfortable go being so bold as to say, yeah, but she's not going to win a second round because I mean, hello. <laughs> no, we're just, you know, we're reading the same stuff as everybody else. So um, it's been a while since Chris and I were in France checking it all out on the ground. <laughs> um, okay, so that's it for politics. Now there is some spring polling and stuff about dogs. Yes. So the weather's one, nice. Margie, have you ever seen the Twitter account We Rate Dogs? No. So then you you are probably profoundly confused as to why I added this to the script. A little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> I, okay. So there is a great Twitter. It was account. better than than NCAA basketball. Which I know. Is what, we're not, which we don't is talk what, about sports. Which is what no I was thought we were going to do. Yeah. There is a Twitter account called We Rate Dogs, and it's very funny. And basically, people just send in pictures of their dogs, and then the account like rates the dogs. But it's all. I mean, it's always like. This pupper looks like he's, you know, just graduated from school with straight A's. 13 out of 10. It's not a binding judgment. Got it. No. It is it is humorous. and It is very humorous. Um, at one point, a couple of months ago, somebody complained that his ratings were always like 13 out of 10, 12 out of 10, 14 out of 10. And somebody <laughs> like was complaining like, that's not right. And there's a, a Twitter exchange that went back and forth between the, the, the We Rate Dogs guy and – this complainer where he intentionally misspells the guy's name, they're good dogs, Brant. It became a, a meme. Ah, okay. Is maybe this is like a millennial thing. No, this is just, Brandt. you know, a Twitter thing. Like I can't, well, you know, some, I'm it's take it take I'm a year behind on some, Twitter memes. Some data, what can I tell some you? data journalism has taken place where <laughs> now we have an actual analysis of the ratings of dogs that have been given. And there has been great inflation that in 2016, there were some dogs that were occasionally rated less than 10. But now, as of about October of last year, almost no dogs rated under a 10. Everybody's a 10 and up. 
since the They're Good Dogs Brant era, I think I think that's about when uh, when 10 of 10 became the floor. All these dogs are going to fancy private colleges where everybody has to get 10, 12, <laughs> 13 out of 10. Otherwise, their parents complain. We dogs. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm fine with it because they are good dogs. They all do deserve 13 out of 10 or above. That's fine with me. But On the internet, every dog is a good dog. On the internet, every dog is a good dog. And then Ariel Levy, who is oh my god, thank my Twitter god for her Twitter my, account, my Twitter style icon, um, has some went through the <laughs> went through the uh, archives at Roper, which is always a good source for some yucks uh, to find some polling on spring. It's spring in Washington. It's lovely out. It's nice. Um, and uh, there were some questions here about spring break. Which of the following do you most associate with spring? Cleaning, vacation, and breaks. Diets and exercise or love. And at this point, cleaning one. This was in the 80s. No, no, this, this is, is new. 2016. I was going to say, this doesn't oh, seem no, dated we'll enough. Okay, I'm like, this doesn't seem dated enough. <laughs> <laughs> the next question you will be stunned to discover was not in the 80s, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so that one, a plurality said cleaning, although people don't really do spring cleaning anymore. That's like oh, an anachronism. Disagree. No, I totally did last weekend, and it but, was glorious. But you, My is, laundry is But all it's done. not like timed, like it's spring, it's time to clean no, everything. No, it definitely is. No, okay. It's, well, no, it is because... I'm thinking, okay, I've got all my heavy winter coats and stuff out. Like, it's time to put them away. And so in the process of me putting away all of my wintry stuff, I get to get out my summer clothes. I've got the cushions for the patio chairs. I'll fish those out of the basement. Like, Right, okay. you got to do the change of season. See, for me, it's like it's nice out. Shouldn't I be doing all these things on, like, a rainy, miserable day? It was rainy and miserable. This was also part of my timing. I looked and I saw Saturday was going to be beautiful, but Sunday was going to be – a hot garbage mess of a weather day. Oh, so I was Sunday like, was tough. It I had to make black one. bean brownies to cheer everybody up. Okay, so that's the first healthy food thing you've talked about that I've not been repulsed by. Like, I like black beans and I like brownies, so I'm intrigued. Tell they me do. More. They do taste. You, the black beans are basically a substitute for the flour. So there's still sugar in them. There's okay. coconut oil and there's chocolate chips in them. Like, I saw one recipe where the okay. black beans were used to look like chocolate chips. That, oh, like, God. You. And I was no, like, no, no, that's, no, no. I'm like, far, that's far, wrong. That's wrong. But this was... You know, black beans as fl- – like you grind them up with a little bit of oatmeal and that's the flour. And um, and so it's just like a boost. It's not like a salad. It's just like okay. a brownie that has a little bit more healthy stuff. Not, it's not actually replacing any of the unhealthy this things. It's not like spinach pancakes. It's not like spinach pancakes. And, uh, and so okay. it was big – it was a lot of fun. So I'm like, Lucy, we're going to make – Black bean brownies. Don't tell anybody the secret ingredient. Let's see if they can guess. And then we'll tell them. She's like, right, got it. Like, ran next door, told every, you know, like five kids who then all came running. You know, it was like a whole thing. And then giving out black bean brownies at Tacoma Park and saying, guess the secret ingredient has a different connotation altogether, which is what happened. I'm like, no, it's actually black beans a secret ingredient, not any other secret ingredient you might be thinking. And then it's a little bit of a letdown. But anyway, they are delicious. So I would recommend it. Okay. Well, it's actually a thing. I'm, it's like I'm, it turns out it's like a whole thing. If you Google it, you'll see like a thousand recipes for black bean brownies. Okay. I'm going to try this. Yeah. I'll, I'll report back, listeners, on how this goes. They taste a little virtuous, but not – they. <laughs> I'll just sort of warn you, but they still taste like well, brownies. As long as virtue tastes delicious, <laughs> I'm fine. But going back to the – Speaking polling. of virtue, let's talk about this next question that I can't even believe is real. A Fox News poll – from February 2013, asks, when you think of spring break, are you more likely to think of a regular vacation full of rest and relaxation or a wild vacation full of drunken students and bikinis? <laughs> I can't believe that's, that's a question. A real question. <laughs> and it's from a couple years ago. Like, <laughs> like, I can't believe this was a thing. I don't know. Um, 83% pick regular vacation. 14, Only 14% think Girls Gone Wild. But I think you kind of feel like you can't answer that. I mean, yes. There is some social desirability bias. Ryan. I have to believe going on here. But good Lord. That is a wacky question. And here's another wacky question. And this is like an old-timey English, even though it's from 1983. Uh, in the spring, whose fancy is most likely to turn to thoughts of love? A young man's, a young woman's, or isn't there any difference? <laughs> like this is, you know, this was asked 
not, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, people were still speaking the same English we all speak now, and 70% said no difference. This is a sign that these questions were not written that well, that both of them have pretty lopsided responses. People were like, what? Even then, people were like, what? No. So this is, thank you, Ariel, for finding these. I'm pretty much just going to suggest that we let her Twitter feed write this closing section of the show. I know. It's always <laughs> funny. Just has it just saves us a lot of work. Uh, so thank you for that. Cause, yeah, because I was struggling. I was struggling. So this was much better. <laughs> I, we should just always just go and not even ask her. Just take whatever she said. Um, okay. So key findings. If you can't trust politicians, maybe you can trust advertisers. And voters are getting spring fever about Trump. The kind of fever where you're in bed shivering and watching House Hunters, not the kind of fever where you're sitting outside drinking a margarita at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And dudes, add birth control and paid leave to your gratitude journals. You will thank us later. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mero and at Soltis Anderson. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Please write a review. Find us on Facebook where we post links to stories we find interesting throughout the week and at www.thepolsters.com with all of our links to incredible polling resources. Great. Thanks. A Westwood One podcast production.